0: Thank you so much for checking out the Connect Church podcast. We hope you're encouraged and inspired by this week's sermon. So let's jump right in and check out this week's message. How many of you are thankful for the very mercy of God? And it just so good not only to sing about but to live and to know and experience. Welcome to Connect Church today. Uh, We are so glad that together... We had the opportunity to make much of Jesus. So if you're visiting today, we are honored by your presence. Thanks for coming and worshiping with us today. But remember to this end, we meet together today to make much of Jesus. I'm going to tell you, um, just this past weekend, um, I am this is my birthday month, and so at the end of the month, I make that transition from, from 30 to 40. Yeah, woo! That's what my body's doing on the inside, and so and so. Erin, uh, she uh, decided to surprise me uh, with a ski trip this weekend with my buddies. Now, mind you, the last time I went skiing was almost five years ago in Alaska. I, I've skied my whole life; I love it. Uh, but it's been it's been about five years, right? And so uh, she surprised me. Here's a picture of me and some of my buddies up there on a, on top of the mountain getting a, getting to ski, and man, it's just beautiful. But I, I've got to share with you. I hurt so bad. And, and so, and so I'm, it's hard for me to move. It's hard for me to do anything up here. I hurt so bad. And, you know, I know she did it to surprise me. Part of me thinks she wanted to kill me. And, and, so, and so we had a great, great weekend. I had a buddy of mine who came up while we were skiing and said, hey, man, did you fall at all out there? I was like, uh-uh. My body will not let me fall because It knows. If I go down, I may never get back up, right? So, man, I choose life, and I'm going to stay up on my skis. But maybe together, uh, you and I can make it through the sermon today. So glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to continue on today in our Ask Me a Question series as we go to the Word of God and hear from the very, very heart of God. And here's the question that comes in today that we're going to unpack and answer today. And that is this. Would a loving God send the man on the island? who has never heard the name Jesus to hell? Would would a loving God send a man on an island who's never heard the name Jesus to hell? This is a great question posed by uh, the Gospel Coalition as they call him the man on the island. Uh, Maybe you've heard David Platt or other authors call this the, the innocent man in the African bush. But the question comes to us today. Would a loving God send a innocent man who lives on an island who's never heard the name of Jesus, would a loving God send him to hell? Now, this man shows up in conversations more than you would think. Anytime a believer asserts that that Jesus is the only way to God, that Jesus is the only way to heaven, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, this man on the island shows up quickly in that conversation. But what about him? What do you do with a guy like him? Now, I I want you to mind something here. Just mind you, this is a a difficult conversation to have. But it is so necessary that we have these conversations in the church. Why? Because its implications are life-changing. Absolutely, they matter. So we do is what Charles Spurgeon one time said. I love this quote from him. He said this, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Isn't that good? Visit many good books, but live in the Bible. So today, we turn to the Word of God, the Bible, to answer this question. If you have your Bibles, open up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And as you head there, I'll tell you what we're going to do today. Is we are going to make the biblical case that there is one way, and only one way to God. One way to heaven, and one way to to salvation. That is faith in Christ and Christ alone. Faith in Christ and Christ alone. Now, such a stance stands in fierce opposition to Christian universalism. And that's, that goes all the way back to a generation after Jesus and origin in the third century. This idea that, hey, by the way, in the end, everybody gets saved. Well, our stance today stands in opposition to that. There's also just the secular universalism that says this, that you know what? always lead to God. There are many ways to God, and yet the position we take today confronts that position and says that there cannot be truth even there. In fact, when I think of universalism, we, we realize this, that it, it's not biblical, it's, it's not practical. In fact, it's more mystical and fanciful than it is anything else. And so we dive in today into a tough passage of Scripture that God is going to shed some great light on. Romans chapter 1, watch as it's spelled out here, you ready? That the wrath of God, the wrath of God... Man, aren't you glad you start out a sermon that way? The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness, the wickedness of people who suppress the truth, watch this, by their sin, by their very wickedness. Now, I want you to notice the word wrath. Can I just say this? Nobody likes that word. Just hearing it, we want to wish it away. We don't want to really talk about it anymore. Can we move on from this subject, please? Wrath is not a discussion that you hear preached about. You're like, hey, sweetheart, hey, kids, let's get in the van. Let's go to the Golden Corral. Let's go celebrate God's wrath. Hey, nobody leaves church thinking that. But we must be careful today together to understand God's wrath biblically. God's wrath, by the way, doesn't refer to this uncontrollable anger that you and I are prone to from time to time. Rather, God's wrath is a controlled concentrated hostility and hatred towards sin. Unlike the anger we display at times, God's wrath is never stained, it's never corrupted by sin. You ready? God's wrath is, is holy, it's righteous, God's wrath is right. It's hard to even say that, isn't it? God's wrath is holy, and God's wrath is righteous. God's wrath Is right now. We ask the question of God's wrath where is God's wrath? Where is it focused? You ready on sin? Why? Because here's what we know of sin that sin destroys, it damages everything and everybody it touches. And you know what? It damages and destroys that which God loves the most as people. Hey. By the way, in every seat in this room is the very testimony of how sin damages and destroys. By the way, up at this very pulpit is a testimony of how sin can damage and sin can destroy. But people don't like to talk about the, the wrath of God. I May mean, I mean, just move on from that subject. Hey, the love of God? I Me, mean, sure. The wrath of God, surely not. Let's just stay away from that subject. I love this quote from Richard Neuber, who described the reality of churches who never teach on biblical or divine wrath. Look what he wrote here. He said, A God without wrath brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the comforts of a Christ without a cross. And you know what? He's right. Biblically, you cannot make the case for a loving God, without acknowledging as well His wrath. His wrath. So what we find in Romans chapter 1 is this, that, that God's wrath is being revealed. It's being exposed against those who rebel against the truth of God. By the way, we're going to make the case it's plainly seen in nature, in creation. It's being revealed against those who refuse His Spirit. And against those who reject Jesus, all the while embracing, celebrating, and glorifying sin. Now, can I throw out a special note here? That Romans chapter 1 is not addressing young children. And it's not addressing those who have cognitive or developmental disabilities. Rather, the focus of Romans chapter 1 are on those, as Romans 1.18 says, who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, the word suppress there, it's a unique word. Let me paint a picture of it. You ready? It's the actual, on purpose, a person who willingly takes the truth of God and pushes it down, denies it, wants nothing to do with it in order that they may live life by and and for themselves. That's what it means to suppress the truth of God by their, their own sin. It's the person who knows truth, but refuses truth. It's the person who knows God exists but rejects Him. And John MacArthur would say this, that this wrath in Romans chapter 1 signifies the strongest kind of anger, that which reaches a fever pitch when God's mercy and His grace are fully exhausted. So you might hear that and you go, is there any hope for us? (laughs) Like, If we're going to go there with wrath, is there any hope for us in light of God's God's wrath? I mean, there is great hope. We find in passages like this in Ephesians 2, 3 through 5, that all of us have lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we are by nature, watch this, deserving of what? Wrath. Hey, guys, from the stage to the back of the room, All of us have been, at some point in our lives, deserving of wrath. But watch this. Something changes here. But because of what? His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions, dead in our sins. And it is by God's grace that you have been saved. So, yes, there is great hope even in the midst of the conversation of God's wrath. For everyone who believes in him. I want you to hear me. The main message of the gospel is not God's wrath. But it is impossible to understand the gospel without it. Without an understanding of the wrath of God against sin. Now, we talk about this wrath of God, and you're like, man, preacher, why why are we talking about this when we're trying to answer the question of of the fate of the man, this innocent man on the island? And why are we doing that? In order to make this case, you ready? That there is no, hear me, church, there is no other way to God, to heaven, to salvation, other than Jesus Christ access to God came at too high a price for Jesus for Him to be just one of many ways to God. Because here's what we understand of the cross of Christ. That God poured out His wrath for our sin on Jesus so that we might be saved from that very wrath that He's poured out against our sin. Jesus took it for us. In fact, the Bible would teach us in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Jesus would say it himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through through me. Now listen, I'm not a Starbucks guy. I'm more of a black rifle coffee guy. Um, But I think this is about a forty-three dollar cup of Starbucks that my wife buys, and uh, it's a bitter point for me. But anyway, I read in USA Today that Starbucks can give you a cup of coffee in over nineteen thousand different ways. In over nineteen, listen, that's ridiculous but evidently highly profitable for Starbucks. So a way to go, Starbucks. We live in a culture and a community where there's many ways to do many things. And so the message we preach today is confrontational even to culture. It's counterculture. Why? Because there's only one way to God, only one way to heaven, Only one way to salvation. And the Bible makes it clear. There are not many ways, but one way. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son, now listen to these words, will not see life for what happens. God's wrath remains. God's wrath remains on them. Let's go back to our text in Romans chapter 1. Head back there if you would. Watch this. So we understand that God's wrath is being revealed against all those who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Watch this. How how is it that way? Because since what may be known about God, watch this, is plain to them. Even the innocent man on the island, it's plain to them because, watch this, God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His, His, His eternal power, And divine nature have been clearly seen being understood, watch this, from what has been made. Meaning this, that God has made it plain to all of us. We all can clearly see that through his creation, that the evidence of God and the truth of God has been revealed. So watch this. So that people are what? Without excuse. Does that mean the innocent man on the island? may not be so innocent. Does that mean people who don't go to church are without excuse? Does it also mean that you and I are without excuse? You see, Romans chapter 1 teaches us that God, our Creator, has revealed Himself to us through His creation. What is seen and what is observed, this is called God's general or natural revelation. Consider this in the Psalms. I love this psalm. The heavens declare in Psalm 19 the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. Hey, don't you know that to be true? Y'all ever drive in off of Chapman Highway into Sevierville and all of a sudden you, you top a hill and you see the mountains and all their beauty? In this little city of Sevierville sitting there with a courthouse in the middle. And then you look at that and go, man, isn't he beautiful? Hey, do you ever wake up early enough for sunrise and see how God paints the sky? And go, man, how could anybody ever? You, You ever watch a sunset go down and see the beautiful colors that rise up on the horizon? Man, God's painted us another sky. You ever watch it just after it snows on the mountains? And you look off in the distance in those beautiful snow capped mountains? How about when you hold a child for the first time, right after they're born? Then you see the beauty of God's creation. We get it. God has made himself known. Through creation, He has revealed His truth, His existence, and the extent of His power by what we can see. Therefore, Romans chapter 1, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, would say this, Therefore, no one has any excuse to deny the truth of God plainly seen by what His hand has made. One author put it this way, and I agree with them: Disbelief requires an act of rebellion against common sense. Disbelief, therefore, requires an act of rebellion against the common sense that God has gifted us to look at the creation around us and "Oh, no, there's no creator. We're just the happenstance of energy and matter and stardust. That's what it means to suppress truth by our very sin and by our very wickedness. You see, here's what we find in creation that the fact that there's a design in creation points us to our designer. That God has baked into his creation bountiful evidence of himself. And once creation points us to our creator God, he points us to the gospel of his son Jesus. So in light of God's general revelation to us through creation, man, what do we do with this man on the island? This innocent man on the island who's never heard the name Jesus. What a Loving God, send him to hell? No. Because hear me, church, there is no such thing as an innocent man on an island. There's no such thing as an innocent man, according to Romans chapter 1. In the United States, our judicial system is really predicated on this truth, right? You ready? that we all are innocent until proven what? Guilty. Everybody's innocent until proven guilty. And yet we begin to engage with sin, and we realize this, that sin is so damaging, it's so destructive, that the truth of God's Word is you and I are guilty until made innocent by Jesus Christ. And so the man on the island who dies without Jesus will live on in eternity Without Jesus. Now you go, that's tough. I'm not there yet. Sounds harsh. Well, give me a minute. Give me a minute. You might say this, but Anthony, what if a, a man or a woman or a child lives on this proverbial island or, or maybe across the street or across the world? Well, what if they genuinely look at the evidence and the truth of God and creation and longs to know their Creator? What happens then? So let me share with you where I stand. For a a person who genuinely looks at the evidence of God, the truth of God in creation, and wants to know God, and wants a relationship with Him, you ready? Without question, no matter where he or she is on on the planet, God will get the gospel to such a seeker. God will get the gospel to them. Let me give you two examples. You ready? First, the biblical evidence. Acts 10, among many other verses, is one such evidence. In Acts chapter 10, God hears the prayer of a man by the name of Cornelius, who's a centurion, and tells him in a vision, if you would, a dream, if you would, to go send your men after a man by the name of Peter, in verse 5. Now, arriving the next day at Peter's house, Cornelius' men ask Peter to come with them to see Cornelius, and to share with him the gospel message according to verse 22. So Peter travels with the men, arrives at Cornelius' house, and Cornelius comes up to Peter and says this, Now, in verse 33, now we're all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Isn't it amazing that Cornelius was waiting to hear a message from Peter that the angel had told him about? A message according to Acts eleven fourteen, 14 says this, a message by which you all will be saved, you and your household. And so here's Cornelius, a genuine man, a good man, religious man, but still lost in his sin. And hear me, religion was not enough for him. Yet he desired to know God. So you know what God did? God used an angel and an apostle to deliver the gospel to Cornelius. And he was saved. God got the gospel to Cornelius, who genuinely was seeking after God. Years ago, I read a, a magazine, a missions magazine, and I'll never forget the story that I read. It talked of a, the story of a young boy who lived in a remote mountainous region in China. And this young boy one day, out in the night, stood at the edge of his village and looked out into the stars, looked at the moon, looked at the heavens, and in his heart and his mind, he says, I know there is a creator. And so he cried out, I know you're there. I know you exist. And this little boy begged of his creator, would you just send someone to tell me your name? Well, let's fast forward about two decades, about 20 years. A missionary was nearing this remote mountainous village. He took the perilous trek to access a people he had never met, a people he did not know. When he got into the village, he recounts seeing a group of people, a young man and several others that had gathered with him. And and there the missionary introduced himself and and started sharing the gospel message with the people. To his surprise, a young man in that crowd quickly placed his faith and trust in Jesus. The missionary would share that he, he kind of stopped the young man and said, buddy, help me understand, how can you place your faith and trust in Jesus? How can you give him your life and you just heard his name? And I'll never forget what the missionary wrote. He said, and that young man, with tears that filled his eyes, replied to that missionary, I have known that he has existed since I was a little boy. And I have waited for some 20 years for someone to come and to tell me his name. And you did that today. You see, God got the gospel to a young, a young boy who sought just to know To know his name. So, hey, hear me. Yes, God uses dreams and visions. We see that with every man, woman, or child on the island across the street or across the world. God will use whatever it takes to get them the gospel. We know that Paul had dreams and visions. One sent him to Macedonia in Acts chapter 16. Another encouraged him to stay and to preach the gospel in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. In fact, I was reading through a mission magazine. And I came across a report that here recently, out of 600 Muslims who were saved, 25% of them experienced a dream that led to their conversion. God is using dreams and visions as a vehicle for the gospel to be made known to this very day. And yes, God can use even angels to bring lost people in contact with the gospel, just like he did in Acts chapter 10. With Cornelius. But I want you to hear me, church. God's favorite means, God's most effective means of bringing the gospel to a man or woman or child on an island across the street or across the world is through His church, is through you and, and through me. Hey, remember, when I speak of church, we're not talking building, we're talking a body. We're not talking about programs, we're talking about people. We're not talking about organization, we're talking about an organism made alive in Jesus Christ. That's his favorite means, that's his most efficient means. And so here is the beginning of a movement. The beginning moment of a movement as Jesus mobilizes his church to reach all people with the gospel. Hey, not just the man on the island but the men, women, and children who live across the street and across the world. You ready? After Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave, he met with his boys, his disciples, and he said this, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Can I ask you a question, church? Are you a part Of the great commission movement. Are are you mobilized. As you sit where you are today. To take the gospel. To the man on the island. The men, women and children. Who live across the street. Or across the world. At some point. As a believer. You have to stop buying into the lie. That this passage here. Is for someone else. Somewhere else. And you've got to realize that this great commission calling is for every believer in Christ. It's for you, it's for me. A couple of weeks ago, I was done at the office. Our church offices are right down the road. And um, Aaron calls me. I was checking out for the day. She calls me. She says, hey, listen, I'm driving towards our house. And she passed a, a church that was on the road. And she says, there's a homeless man sleeping on a pew outside the church. I said, really? She goes, yes. Yeah. She goes, I- I'm going to pull over, and I'm going to give him one of our homeless packs, something we keep in our, our vehicles for, for folks we run into. And I said, well, wait a second. Wait a second. I said, he's sleeping. How big a dude is he? <laughs> How big a guy is he? I-, I can't tell. I said, who's with you? She said, the kids. Just me and the kids. I said, you know what? I'll be there in four minutes. Just hold off for a second. So I, I drive down to her, and, and there's a man asleep. I said, you know what, Aaron, why don't you guys stay in the van? Y'all pray. I'll go up and talk to him. I, I don't know why he's sleeping. I can't size him up, so let, let me just go over there and talk to him. And so I walked up to the piano. Dude, you still alive? Anyway, he says, oh, yeah, hey, I'm so sorry. I was just tired. I was like, man, is this, this no problem. And I sat down with him. I got to know his name. His name's Joey. I could tell that he lived a lot of life. I could quickly tell that addiction was a part of his story. But he was sober. Man, I sat down with him for about 45 minutes. And I just, man, tell me your story. And, uh, and so he told me his story, and, and I was able to uh, kind of enter. We find the broken places and interject the gospel with him. And, and I just shared the gospel with him. I said, well, you came to a church to fall asleep. Are you a believer? Or is this just convenience? And he's like, well, you know, I I guess I believe there's a God. Maybe I do. But I try to be a good person, a moral person. I try to do good things so that I'll make it one day. I said, how's it going? He said, not so good. I said, yeah, me either. I said, the truth is, is you can't good yourself into heaven. Only Jesus was good enough to get us to heaven. I shared the gospel. We looked at the mountains that were right there in front of us. I said, man, look how good God is in his creation. By the way, man, God loved and created you. You're his. And he loves you and he, so much so that he sent a, a believer here to you. By the way, I checked out already that day for being a pastor. He's just a follower of Jesus on the way home. I sat down there with him, and Aaron caught this picture. By the way, I love my wife. She's in her minivan, she's praying, she's taking a picture, and she's got a hold of the pistol all in one shot. It's unbelievable. She, she'd be ready if that guy tried to hurt me. This picture I hear, shortly after, I said, Joey, shared the gospel and says, Joey, would you, would you like to give your heart and your life to Jesus? He began to weep. And he said, Yes. You can't see it from this picture because of how grainy it is. But right now, he is weeping out loud and crying out for Jesus to save him. And I got to thinking, you know, God didn't call me that day to reach a man on an island. Rather, to reach a man sitting on a church pew. And to take time out of a busy day just to share the gospel with him. To get to know his name. And guess what? To tell him Jesus' name. to Tell him how much he loved him. Tell him of the cross. An empty tomb. When are we going to stop buying into the lie That the Great Commission is for someone else, somewhere else. And realize that there are so many Joeys out there just waiting for you to pull your truck over and share the gospel with them. You say, Anthony, what's at stake? What is it? Why why do we need to embrace this great commission calling? Because I want you to hear me. There are a lot of men, a lot of women, a lot of children, a lot of joeys on islands and across the street. And across the world, in fact, the Joshua Project, who tracks people groups, says this, that in the world there are 17,400 people groups. Of those, 7,400 or 42.5% of them are categorized as unreached, meaning this, they don't have ready access like we do to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many of those have not even heard his name. Guys, that represents 3,233,000,000 people or 41%, point percent of the world's population. You ready? That are living on that island we're talking about. Men and women and children who don't know his name. Who don't have Jesus. Let, let's bring that to our little Bible Belt community here in Severe County. That statistics hold true for our areas, they do nationwide. 75,000 people are in nobody's church today. In good old Sevier County. Many of which are living every day and they're living their lives without Jesus. Now some of y'all at home going, man, I was just sick today. I promise I love it. Or not talking about you but so many, so many men and women and children across the street from us without Jesus. Is God going to have to resort to dreams? Is He going to have to send angels? Is He going to have to give visions? Because you and I are unwilling, are unwilling to love people enough to tell them about Jesus. I'm going to tell you something. I, I don't want God to have to resort to any dream, any vision, any angels. Send me. Send me to the man on the island, man across the street, across the world. I want him. I want to share Jesus with them. I want to close with this. On May 20th in the year 2000, John Piper, an older man with crazy hair and a meek voice, stood on a cool and foggy Memphis morning before 40,000 college young adult age students. Stood before him. And his task was to preach the gospel, to challenge them, and boy, did he. In fact, he would use a sermon illustration on that day, on May 20th, that would send thousands of those who were in the crowd that day off on the mission field and into the ministry. How do I know that? Some of the very people who shaped my life were there that day. And so I thought in closing today, I would paraphrase the illustration that he used. Here's what he shared with that crowd. He said, three weeks ago, our church got news that a woman named Ruby and Laura had both been killed in Cameroon. He says, Ruby, she was over 80 years old, single all of her life, yet she poured it out for one great thing. To make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. He said, Laura, she was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old and serving by Ruby's side there in Cameroon. And he shared the account of what they had just learned that as they were both driving together in their mission vehicle, their brakes went out. And both Ruby and Laura careened out the side of a mountain face to their deaths. And he asked the students gathered there that day, is this a tragedy? Is this a tragedy? He said, two lives driven by one great vision spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ two decades after most of their American contemporaries and counterparts have retired to throw their lives away. And he looked at the crowd and said, No, that is not a tragedy. That is glory. And then he unfurled a Reader's Digest from 1998. And he told the people that day, Here's the real tragedy. The headline was this, Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live on the coast, and they cruise the ocean in their 30-foot trawler, and they collect seashells. And he looked at the crowd that day and said, that's a tragedy. That is the tragedy. He said this, and people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. And he says, I get 40 minutes today to plead with you. Don't buy it. With all of my heart, I plead with you. Don't buy that dream. The American dream. A a nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family. A nice retirement, collecting seashells as the last chapter of your life before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account for what you did. He says, imagine getting there and all you can offer Jesus is this. Look at my seashell collection. Jesus, look at my seashell collection. And then he looked at the crowd of those tens of thousands of students and said this with every bit of passion he could muster. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. And thousands of those students Left those fields in Memphis and went on to serve Christ on the mission field and in ministry and churches all across this nation, unwilling to waste their, their lives. I want you to hear me, church. There is nothing wrong with retirement. I hope to retire at 41, right? Like, there's nothing wrong with retirement. There's nothing wrong with beaches and boats. And there's nothing wrong with seashell collections. What happens is when you and I have taken this life that God has gifted us, And we forget about the fact that there are still men and women and children on an island across the street and across the world who don't have Jesus. And it's this understanding that maybe, just maybe, when our life is done and we stand before Jesus, maybe we can offer Him more than just seashells with our lives. I would dare say I didn't even mention this in the first service, but not many of you are Christian universalists. Meaning on doctrine, we would agree that Jesus is the only way. But I would dare say the majority of us are practical universalists. Meaning this, that we go on and live our lives as if everybody's going to be okay and they're going to make it anyway. Don't waste your life I, I oftentimes i oftentimes think of the day i get to meet jesus the day that i close my eyes in death here on this life and i get to meet him the older i get the more excited i really am about that day i try to rehearse in my mind sometimes what i'll say to him i just can't wait I got to thinking this week after this illustration, I thought, what is it that I could offer Jesus with my life? More than just seashells. What is it that would bring honor and glory to his name and would be a a life that's not wasted? And I thought, what if I gave him not a seashell collection? but what about souls? What if I brought with me the souls of every man and woman and child on an island that needed to hear His name? And I said, no, it ain't going to be the angels. It's not going to be a dream or a vision, but I'll go. Well, what about the souls of the men and the women and the children who live not on an island but across the street? across this nation or across the world. I hope to arrive at the day where I can go, Jesus, you know what? About a few years ago, you called me to plant Connect Church and I shared the gospel with everybody that came in the door. And so here's the here's some souls of men, women, and children that I did everything right to tell them your name. Because I'm telling you, When I get to him, I want more than seashells. I want want to show him the souls of the people I've told about Jesus. Don't waste. Don't waste your life. Let's pray together, can we?